the wave is big. You can't get up till the wave is is finished. What's the what's the thought process? How long do you have to hold your breath for? How do you not panic? And how much fear do you have when that's actually happening? Every big wave is so different, and every big wave pounding at every spot is so different. You can have a 80-foot wave at Nazare, and you fall right in the wrong spot, like the worst spot possible, and somehow the lip lands on you and kind of pushes you out the back. Normally, on a big wave, and the lip lands on you, or you, you fall, it's super violent at first. Thanks for listening to part two of my amazing conversation with legendary surfer Garrett McNamara, who owns the world record for the largest wave ever surfed at 100 feet tall. If you haven't yet listened to part one of my amazing conversation with Garrett, be sure to check that one out first. The waves get bigger and bigger, and at some point, no one had ever heard of the sport. And then as the waves got bigger and bigger, I I remember seeing on TV the nightly news, someone surfed 40 feet and then 50 feet, and it was kind of like a little speck on a big wave you could hardly see on the news and then became a little more popular. And then 60 Minutes ran something where you're featured. um, Anderson Cooper described big wave surfing. It's like going, it's like you're cruising down the side of a skyscraper, but the skyscraper is collapsing on you. And then he said he's never met anybody like you. Can you tell us what big wave surfing is? What big wave surfing is? Yeah, what is big wave surfing for the people listening and, uh, and, view- and watching who don't know? Well, Anderson sh- describes it pretty well. <laughs> 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 Trying to copy me is hilarious. Yeah, the- Anderson is a good friend. I really, really like him a lot, and we've stayed in touch. We've done three different shows together. Yeah, I love that guy. Um, the crazy thing is... Uh, he wasn't even afraid when we were on the jet ski and I'm, and we're going through these places that I, and he made me go through a place that I would not go through. He called me, he's like, we're, we're going out, we're going to go around the rock. And he's like, he's like, go through there. I'm like, no, no, we don't go through there. One's been like that. He's like, what, what are you chicken? And I'm like, calling me chicken. So poop, we went through. <laughs> uh, the poor uh, cameraman. I felt, uh, I, I felt bad for your cameraman in some of that, in some of that episode. Yeah. We, um, talked about fear and he said i i said i'm not really afraid of big waves anymore and he's like yeah i'm like, what about you and you're always in these crazy life and death spots and he's like you get sensitized you totally get sensitized and um yeah he's not really afraid in the situations he gets himself in he liked to and then nicole interviews him say okay we'll do the interview for you as long as you you let us interview you for our show we we knew something was going to happen someday, and uh, great. she's she's all. So what what do you think your life purpose is? And her son, he's like, "Wow, oh, my life purpose! Mm, ah, oh, wow, my life purpose! Wow, my life purpose! Ah!" Uh. And he took a triple take, and then he's like, "Oh, to shed light on situations that need." attention and to bring awareness to what's going on and we're like oh right nailed it (laughs) but um what is big wave surfing well everybody's big wave is different 
like some people of three foot shore break is a big wave and it can be intimidating and powerful uh, other people it's a six foot wave other people it's a 10 foot wave other people there's no limit um or they haven't found one um there's tr two different types of big wave surfing there's traditional big wave surfing where we paddle out with a surfboard and get ourselves in the right spot and then turn around and paddle as hard as we can to try and catch this massive moving force of moving water and try and get down it and then turn at the bottom and try and make the way and that's where it all started and uh you know started back in the day with no leashes and really really terrible uh function not very functional boards and then nowadays we have really good boards but the only the boards didn't change too much but they're definitely functional there's functionals they can be for the size they have to be to catch the wave but then we got the toe surfing which is a new sport it's a relatively new 1994 so it uh PWC, a wave runner, a jet ski, a personal watercraft. They're called personal watercrafts, the Yamahas, Kawasaki Sidu, and uh, PWC is the, the name. And then we have a tow rope, just like a water ski or a wakeboarding tow rope that connects to the back of the uh, wave runner. And then you have a handle at the end of that tow rope that the surfer holds on to. And then he's on a normally traditional surfing we a big wave we were at a 10 foot surfboard with towing surfing we were at a six foot surfboard and we have straps built into the surfboard and different materials are used for different conditions but it's basically a six foot surfboard no matter what size the waves are and the weights vary and the shapes don't vary too much but some guys are experimenting here and there but it all really comes back to the same shape that we designed with Mercedes vans. We made the ultimate board with Mercedes, and most people are using pretty much the same shape and pretty much the same technology. But uh, we get towed out of the water into, on, a, on the six-foot surfboard with our feet shoved into the foot straps, and the rope pulls us up out of the water, so now we're on top of the water skimming, and the, the, wave, the driver will drive you towards the wave, and you choose, you see a big set coming, and you choose first wave, second wave, third wave. You uh, take, you, the jet ski drives towards the desired wave and the set and, and gets you up to the wave speed. And then right before it breaks, he pulls away, turns out to the right or turns out to the left. And you hold the rope as long as you can to get the whip, to get the speed you need to enter the wave. And then you let go of the rope, and you're flying down the wave, and you're, you're t carving back to the left, to the right, to the left, to the right, looking where you want to go, what you want to achieve on the wave. Every wave's different, and everything that you want to do on on every wave is different, depending on what type of wave you're surfing. And if it's a hollow wave, you want to get in the barrel, and you let go of the rope, and you you're waiting and waiting instead of running. And we can all run away from the wave. We can all get away from the wave and be safe, or you can stay as deep as you can and try and get in the barrel or try and do a big maneuver a big snap or a big aerial for me i just focus on getting barreled so you let go you're 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 fading to the left and then you're going to go to the right and then the lips coming over 
And then if everything goes right, you get right under the lip. And uh, can we remember one wave where I got right under the lip and then the lip kind of misted, hit me, smacked me in the face, pa, 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 right as I went under, three little smacks. And so I'm going, and then right when it hit me, I'm blind now, and I'm coming into the barrel. I, I can feel that I'm in the barrel, but I can't see. And I'm, I'm feeling like I'm getting really deep. And all I'm thinking is myself, going to make it, going to make it. And I'm coming up the face of the wave as the barrels engulf me. I'm gone. I'm disappeared in this cylinder. And then I'm starting to feel the the uh, compression, it, the wave when it barrels, it turns into a compression chamber and I start feeling it sucking backwards like a backdrop. <sighs> and then it kind of goes silent and I'm sliding up the wall and I feel like I'm about to fall off but I'm feet are in the straps and then this hurricane force, a compression fire hose spit comes from behind and <sighs> and right as I'm about to fall, the, the wind, the force of the water and the wind that the compression chamber made picks me up literally off the face of the wave where I'm about to fall, corrects me, straightens me out, and then throws me out right in front of the wave behind after the spit. The spit comes out the wave, then I land, and I come out, and I'm just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, thank you, God. It was, yeah, that was still the most memorable ride I've ever had in a the most, uh, the the best feeling I've ever gotten big wave surfing. Spiritual, definitely spiritual. Just the sensation was over, is uh, just so, it wasn't overwhelming, it was just all the training, all the sacrifice, all the planning, all the goal setting, it all came together on that one wave. Most people can't imagine surfing something as tall as Niagara Falls. And when I was doing my research on the podcast, I heard you're going speeds of 50, 60 miles an hour down almost a straight face. What, what's it like? Because one, one little slip, I mean, I've seen some of these wipeouts. I think 10 people have died in the history of big wave surfing. You had lost a surfer in January of this year. It's extremely dangerous. We can, we're going to talk about the danger in a few minutes, but... 50, 60 miles an hour, that's insane. Yeah, you know, it's... it's uh, Six-foot board, 50, 50, 60 miles an hour, that doesn't even seem it possible. It depends on the, the conditions. If there's no wind and it's glassy and smooth and there's no chop coming out from the rip coming out of the channel, it's like cutting butter with a hot knife and you can pretty much do anything you want. It's so beautiful and so smooth and so peaceful and and spiritual and just like ah dancing with god on this beautiful face that's just so perfect and smooth and then that's out at cortez banks which is going to be in season three and then you got somewhere like jaws or even harder nazare it's these massive chops coming up the face and you're just hitting them like it's like icy moguls and they're six feet tall and you're just boom 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 and you're just trying to keep your feet in a strap and you're trying to keep the board on the water and trying to set an edge so you can turn and make the wave and it's it's uh whew, yeah your brain is getting rattled your body's rattled your whole 
bean is getting rattled and you're just doing your best. And the new, new, uh, all the surfers nowadays, there's a, there's a new, uh, Char new charge of amazing surfers in Nazareth right now that are just pushing the envelope and everybody's Kai, Kai and Lucas Kai Kai Lanny and Lucas Chombo kind of led the charge of the new way of surfing big waves with flips and aerials and and now there's a a, a bunch of really good guys right behind them actually right there with them. Kylan is amazing. I, I I like to have him on my show. So when we're over, I'm going to ask you for an intro. But let's talk about Nazare because it was a place most people in the world had never heard of unless you were a local. Can you tell us how this whole thing happened and Laird Hamilton's email and then how long it took you to actually go out and have a look? Uh, it 2005, I got an email from a guy named Dino who was a local bodyboarder, and he ran the sports program for the municipality, for for the um, the mayor. He was under the mayor running the sports program. Um, in in Nazaré, Portugal, just for those who don't know, Nazaré is a – really, it's a seafront town in Portugal. There's a huge – would you call it a castle or a lighthouse on the edge? Just a, a lighthouse, a beautiful lighthouse right on the edge of the cliff. And um, he was living in that fishing village for his whole life. And he would go up on the cliff with his father when he was a young boy. And he, he says that he uh, imagined people surfing it way back then. And then he had the dream of somebody surfing it. And then they were trying to bring attention to the town somehow. And so they emailed me and, and – uh, well, first they emailed Laird Hamilton. He told me this about five years ago. He didn't tell me this until about five years ago. First they emailed Laird Hamilton, and they didn't get a reply. Then they emailed, because Laird's the man. I mean, who wouldn't email Laird Hamilton first? And then uh, Carlos Verde, because he was basically the man in Brazil and international he was he was winning events back then and he was pushing the envelope everywhere and uh no reply and then he's I, I was the third choice the third string and he said i replied in like minutes he couldn't believe what he, he and then he was scared he's like holy shit this guy replied and he might come and i don't want him to die and now i feel responsible but maybe he was too worried so I, we emailed for five years and nothing happened really. It was just back and forth. Um, yeah, a surfer and a bodyboarder. He, he he's definitely well educated and and he's um, very strategic. And it it is all because of him that we ended up there. I have to give Dino the credit. But it took you but, a while but, to get out there. But. It wasn't really going to happen until my wife saw the email. She saw the thread. She was going through my emails and said she's getting me organized. And then uh, she said, what's this? Some, well, some guys want me to come to Portugal and see if their wave's any good and if it's big and good. And if it is, can I help promote their town? And she's like, should we go? And I said, well, you want to go? And she's like, yeah, why not? So, so we went. And one month later, we were in Portugal after she got the email chain. Tell us how a big wave actually forms in the canyons under the water and what happens when the caves 
or the canyons collapse underwater that causes these 100-foot waves? Well, you have the low-pressure system, ideally coming out of, like, Nova Scotia, somewhere on the East Coast, preferably up higher. When they come out of, like, below New York, Florida, and they come straight across, they're, they're to west, and they don't reach full potential. But if they're northwest, coming down from, like, Ireland, um, Iceland, Ireland, Nova Scotia, we need a straight northwest swell for the swell to reach full potential. The swell is created by the low pressure, preferably up there, and the strength of the wind and the duration of that strength of wind determines what size swell will arrive on the beach. There's a few other variables in between that slow pressure if there's something going on in between but usually there's just one low pressure sometimes there's a high pressure which you want the high pressure on the land and even a little bit into the ocean to stop the wind from blowing uh, or keep it either dead wind or offshore when that swell arrives so you got this strong wind blowing northwest for a long period of time creates these undulations on the surface of the ocean you, and then they get bigger and bigger and bigger and then as they reach Portugal they're received by a shelf which is about 30 to 60 feet deep max and then right on the edge of the shelf is a canyon that's three times the size of the Grand Canyon 25 miles long and um, uh, right at the shoreline where the wave breaks. It's 1,000 feet deep in the trench and 60 feet deep here, 30 to 60 feet. So this, and it's uh, shaped like a funnel. So the swell comes down the canyon full force, nothing stopping it to reach full potential. And then it hits the same exact swell, comes across the shelf, and gets chopped by the shelf, slows down, loses height. And, and a, so then the same, it's a weird phenomenon. The same exact swell that should hit the same time now meets at different times. It comes down the canyon really fast, comes across the, the shelf slow, and it, and, and it turns towards the swell that's now coming across the shelf. So, and it creates just two different swells. Same swell turning into two different swells, going two different directions, causing a wedge. And then sometimes that wedge cancels out. If they, if they miss just right, this huge swell, this huge wedge will be coming in, and somehow it misses and it cancels itself, and it looked like it was going to be the biggest wave you ever saw, and it doesn't even break. And then the one behind doesn't look as big, but it hits just right and causes this wedge effect of teepee, which generates the tallest, tallest waves in the world because it's basically a rogue wave on the shore, but the classifier rogue wave is is when two different swells in the middle of the ocean come from two different directions and meet up and cause this thing to just boom, jump up and take out a boat. 
This is on the shore from the same swell, but the same swell getting turned at itself. And, and timing different. So it could be the second wave and the set is hitting the third wave of the canyon. So you talked about kind of the wave you think is going to be the big wave, doesn't turn out to be the big wave, the one behind it may be the big wave. People's careers depend on the size of the wave. So is there any way to judge when you're back there, or are you just kind of getting lucky? I mean, we're, we're going to talk about the team and the lookout and the binoculars in a minute, but when, when you're out there, you're making a judgment call. You're looking around, you're waiting on the wave. So how does that all happen? What's the thought process there? I'm going to take this wave or I'm going to take that wave? Well, first and foremost, we have preferably Nicole on the lighthouse watching, doing safety and helping us choose to go north or south, first peak, second peak, third peak, and helping us to choose which first, second, third wave. And But at the end of the day, it's up to us to really choose where we want to go and what we want to do and what we're focusing on that day. And the funny thing about Nazare is it's not always the big outside wave. A lot of times it's the inside wave that magnifies and intensifies and gets taller than any of the other waves so it sometimes those insiders that nobody's going for just become these mutant monsters that just pop up out of nowhere and get 70 80 feet tall when and everybody's sitting out the back waiting for the set uh first you have you have nicole on the lighthouse orchestrating you have a safety you have the ski driving you into the wave you have a safety ski behind that and preferably on the really big days you have a second safety ski backup safety so you're a runner professional runner you're doing the 100 yard dash you can kind of feel like i had a good run you're a skier you know you're someone going a professional skier you're going down the hill you know you had a, a good run there's a lot of talk in terms of did you surf a 100-foot wave? Did you not surf a 100-foot wave? It's hard to measure. Can you actually tell once you're up there how big the wave is? Or you need to get feedback when you get back to say, wow, that was a big one? Because it really is a little bit marginal when you're up there, right? You got 75, 80, 85, 90, and then 90 plus. Yeah, for me, I have no idea how big the waves are when I'm riding them. You can um, kind of feel it. You can feel how massive it is, and you when that when the wave the sun is here, and you're coming down, and you're in the sun, you're in the light, and then the wave comes up and lurches over and takes out the sun. That's when you know it's massive, and um, how big they actually are. Some of them feel huge, and they're they're more flat, and just massive mass of water and other ones are taller and not quite as thick and stand up taller and so at Nazareth it's really hard to tell how big they are and um, yeah as far as measuring them it's the most controversial subjective not scientific at all purely ego or politically measured they either you're either measuring with ego or with politics and usually both you talk about kelly slater some of the world's laird hamilton uh laird hamilton and the individual sports 
that is an individual sport for the most part, right? They get a wave, they ride it, they're doing their tricks. Big wave surfing is a team sport. You couldn't do it without a team. Talk to us about your team. You already talked about Nicole. We're going to talk about her more later. But how critical is having a team? What's the team? And what do people actually do besides Nicole, who's up there in the lighthouse on a walkie-talkie, giving you advice on wind and waves? Well, you're only as good in your team pretty much everything in life. And their first teammate should be your wife, the one you spend most of your time with, hopefully. Uh, and you know, all your planning and, and goal setting. and Or, you know, as long as you're working together with your, your wife or your partner, then things are usually going in a good way. And you're usually happy. Um, at least big picture stuff. Um, but then the team runs deep. I mean, you got your safety drivers you got your trainers you got well you got your safety drivers you got your first responder on the beach you got your ambulance your firemen your uh the lifeguards and then now there's a first responder vehicle that's on the beach with everything to bring somebody back the most sophisticated equipment now is in Nazareth ready to help people um so you got that then you have your trainers your dietitians your um then you then you've you, nowadays you've got your instagram you gotta either do it yourself or you, usually the guys that are really successful have their own personal videographer that they work with to create stuff together and do the posts usually themselves or together with the person so you're making sure all your goals are met and everything's going in a good way or most people aren't doing things in a good way they're just doing things to be cool or make money but if you're doing it right you're doing it in a good way to try and be inspiring and try and make a difference and um then uh, there's all the partners and sponsors and uh there's so much more, so much more. I mean, you know, lawyers for, and advisors and, and, uh, and yeah, sponsors and partners. What um, kind of training? Really, really, the main thing is it's all about who you surround yourself with. It's all about joining forces with people who have the same desires, same goals, same dreams. And, and it's really important to me to know besides the thing we're doing together and besides the thing that we're focusing on, what is your personal goal? What is your personal dreams? How can I help you achieve what you personally want besides this collective group that we have here? So that way I can always help the person get where they want to get. If there's anything that I can do, I, can, I, know, what, that I know what or how or when to help. You talk about training and diet. What, how does a big wave surfer train, and what's the diet? I assume you're burning just a tremendous amount of calories when you're out there. The training can be as as uh, as root as focused as you want, or as open. Um, these days, everybody takes it very serious. Back in the day. Party all night, go surf, no problem, whatever. Nowadays, it's focused. Most people aren't drinking. Most people aren't doing drugs. Most people are training uh, three to six or seven days a week. 
most people are on a really clean uh, program for what their intake, they're, they're evaluating what helps them run at full potential, what helps, what will enable them to run at full potential and have longevity if they want to stay in the game. Um, the people that do that exceed mightily. The people that don't just kind of exist for a little while and then they're gone. Unless they're just a freak and very uh, well-liked and loved. What's the physical training that you do? Are you running five miles a day? Are you lifting weights? Are you surfing 30-foot waves every day and just trying to maintain some kind of regularity? Because you can't go out and surf 10 big waves a day, can you? I was never into running, really. I, I would run... I would uh, hike up a hill, maybe run a little, but I, I did like running downhill. I don't know, for something, I really like the for short distance, not for long, but it's just jarring the all the joints and the hip and the back and the, the vertebrae. I, I really like the doo, 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 but downhill like on trails. But I never liked long distance. Um, I, I do love a good park, a good grass field, uh, like a football field or, or preferably a grass field. And doing hold my breath exercises while doing the loops. That's what I used to do back in the day. That was my main underwater training was hold my breath exercises at a field and cave diving and rock running uh, during the summer. And that was pretty much it. Um, I, mean, I did a lot of weights and yoga, and but the main thing that kept me in the water was surfing, getting pounded. The more you get pounded, the more you can get pounded, and the more stamina you have, to, the same exact type of situation you're going to put yourself in, you just do it over and over and over and over, and then it's like second nature. Um, as I got older, nowadays, um, the training looks like I love my assault bike. To get the cardio going real quick. I love the rower. And I love the um, rower and the assault bike are priceless. And then there's, you know, different um, circuit training. I do love my weights. I do love my machines. But the bands are like gold when you get older. Bands are just priceless. And I have a very amazing trainer that I work with three times a week. And then when I'm on a good one, I, I train the other six days, I other three days, and then I rest one. Um, ideally, I'm working out six days a week, three with my trainer, three on my own. And then I'm doing weights, bands, and cross-training. And I like to... Do circuit training three days and weight training for three days with the machines and, and free weights. And then um, I'm going to be in Portugal the whole month of July. I'll probably put a little running. I'll do the assault bike for sure, do the rower, do the weights and the machines, I'm probably going to do a bit of running. I'll be at Costa Terra in um, in Comporta, and we have a really good gym there. We have a good trainer, but I have everything that I that I my program I already have down to a science. But it's good to have somebody spot to make sure you're not you're you're staying symmetrical. 
there's no mirrors at the facility, so it's nice to have somebody double check. Um, the diet is super important. As you get older, it's so important to put super in the in the tank. Um, and let's you let's figure just out tell what, people. Uh, let's just stop here for a quick second. You're fifty five years old. How, how old are you now? Pardon me. Fifty five. You're fifty five. For the viewers and listeners, if you're listening, and you can't see Garrett. He's fifty five years old. And he's still doing this and all, all the training. I mean, it just puts things in perspective. So tell us about the diet. I'm sorry to um, interrupt, but I wanted people to really know how old you are as you continue talking about the training. The fact that you're still doing it at, at 55 is amazing. The diet is the most challenging of all, and that will keep you in the game or not. The training can keep you in, but your body will start to break down if you keep putting garbage in it. And I love my acais. I love my desserts. Um, so it's that's the most challenging thing for me is not to go get an acai with the kids or not to go get an ice cream with the kids. Um, the breads and the starches, I love them as well, but I can do without them. And the the the. Ice creams and Aussies, I can do without it, but it's it's a it's definitely challenging for me. Um, in a perfect world, I'm and that, and the, and what to eat, what to actually put in your body. What is your super? What is your super? What is your what's going to help you run at full potential and and peak performance all day long and not get tired? And everybody's body is so different. And everybody's circum, uh, what they were raised on, what their forefathers were raised on, but mainly what you were raised on. That's what mainly matters. And what your body likes is everybody's different. And you got to experiment. Now, I, I believe after doing so much research and so many different diets and so many different programs that number one, water. Water is life. If you drink a lot of water all day, every day, you're ahead of the game. That's your oil. That's going to keep the pistons going up and down. You, no oil, car brake. No water, body breaks down. Um, then plant-based is definitely, well, not definitely. There's so many studies saying don't eat kale and don't eat this. And your body, you can't fry. Your body can't fry. I mean, so I'm, a, I'm a little confused right now. I was 100% plant-based. And, and I wasn't eating any. And we were even raw. The best I've ever felt was I was raw. But I was, I was making a point to drink more water than I ever drank. So maybe it was the water. But the raw, when I was eating raw for about a year, that was the best I ever felt. A vegan was amazing. But then there's something to stay for a good steak. Where do you get your iron? Where do you get your protein? And it, but it, it's where you get it. If you're getting it from the store and it's not free-range organic, grass-fed, then you're basically poisoning yourself. You're eating hormones, you're eating pesticide, you're eating antibiotics, and you're just prolonged suicide, basically. Um, luckily our bodies are so resilient and adapt so quickly to all this garbage we put in them. I don't understand how you got this crazy drug addicts who are doing whatever drugs all their whole life and 
somehow they quit doing drugs and all of a sudden they're fine. They're like, what the hell? How does that work? And then you have other people who will smoke a cigar and drink Jack for their, their whole life and they're 95 and they're still out there in the garden. So it's a, your genes matter, I think, a bit. Or maybe it's a mindset. Um, there's so many variables that it's... The, the studies are not accurate because there's too many variables in the, everybody's life. Where they live, is there good clean drinking water, is there an electrical pole, is the air clean, are they happy, are they depressed, are they angry? I mean, I feel like it's 50% your mind and 50% what you put in it, but it can go 90-10 either direction. I, I do love a good steak, grass-fed, free-range organic. I love fish. I never eat chicken because it's the dirtiest. All the fowl is the dirtiest, most disgusting uh, produced. But if it's farm-raised, uh, if it's, if it's free-range organic, then chicken can be good too. Um, turkey, whatever. Uh, you try to find an organic turkey. Those things are so skinny. <laughs> we had one last thanksgiving and my wife was like what the, our 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 uh, mother in portugal we bring her the turkey and she's used to these fat turkeys and she's like the turkey's sick i can't cook this for you guys <laughs> this is no good and she cooked it and it came and it was it was but it still tastes really good <laughs> all right so you talked about getting pounded and you talked about holding your breath for a long time as part of the training. I've seen some of these falls. I've seen some of your falls. I've seen people rushing out on the jet ski. I've seen people thinking you died. And we've seen people on your show die. So what is the, what is the feeling when you fall and you're beneath that water? And the, the power is tremendous, as you explained on the show. And how long are you holding your breath for? How do you not panic? And how hold, how long do you have to hold your breath for before you know you're going to come up for air? And how do you deal with the fear of dying? The fact of the matter is that we had never lost a toe surfer, toe surfing, in the history of toe surfing until last year in Nazareth. I thought for sure we were going to lose somebody the next year. We almost lost Maya. Uh, I thought every year we didn't lose somebody. I could not believe it because the the way the waves break and where they're breaking and there's some zones that you can't really rescue people. And um, I thought we were going to lose somebody right out of the gate. And we uh, every year I was just like scratching my head going, wow, another year. Wow, we made it. I, didn't, I stopped thinking about it. I stopped thinking that we were going to lose somebody when we finally lost somebody. Um, it was very unfortunate. He didn't have adequate uh, safety protect safety gear for Nazareth. For any other spot, eh, Nazareth, Jaws, he it wasn't adequate either. And he was a local from uh, a Brazilian, but he was one of the first guys to paddle at Jaws, and he was a animal. He was a beast. He he can handle. He's handled what most men cannot handle. He did it without a life jacket. He was the f one of the first guys out there before the jets. Before we started putting flotation on, he was out there, jaws paddling the monsters that most everybody cannot survive. And somehow he made it. He went to Nazareth and he uh, surfed that morning. 
I don't know the facts. I don't know if he was out of shape. He looked out of shape. I heard that he ate a huge lunch, and he wanted to go back out. He just put a thin life jacket on. He didn't put a thick one. It, looked, it wasn't big, so he didn't think much of it. He needed, a, he needed inflation or a massive flotation vest for that day. And he got just held underwater too long. Now, I believe that it was oxygen deprivation and he drowned. But I don't know. The autopsy was not released. It could have been a stroke. It could have been a heart attack. Um, I don't know if he was vaccinated or not. I don't know. Um, yeah. There's, there, so he, we might not have lost him to toe surfing. He might have got a, a heart attack or a stroke. Um, that was the first death we've ever had while somebody was toe surfing. So big wave surfing, we've had ma uh, many throughout the years. I mean, that we know about in our big news, not too many, but as far as a competent big wave surfer drowning, not too many, but there's been some. Um, what was, what, where were we going with the question? Shoot, I'm going too long we're, again. We're going, you're on this huge wave, you fall off the board, the wave is going to push you way underwater, and if you don't hold your breath, you're going to die for sure. So what's the feeling like? How far deep are you going? And do you realize at some point this wave is still pushing me, pushing me, pushing me down? The wave is big. You can't get up till the wave is, is finished. What's the... What's the thought process? How long do you have to hold your breath for? How do you not panic? And how much fear do you have when that's actually happening? Every big wave is so different, and every big wave pounding at every spot is so different. You can have a 80-foot wave at Nazare, and you fall right in the wrong spot, like the worst spot possible. And somehow the lip lands on you and kind of pushes you out the back. Normally, on a big wave and the lip lands on you or you, you fall, it's super violent at first. It just hits you so hard and it feels like it can rip you apart, literally. And there has been people that have their limbs ripped off their body, but... The only thing that held them together was the skin. Everything else, all the ligaments, all the bones, all the tendons, everything is ripped. But the skin holds it. Has, nobody's got them actually taken off. Everything but the skin. Um, while you're getting ready for the pounding, you prepare ahead of time. You uh, breathe up while you're out there. You oxygenate. You hyper-oxygenate. You calm your heart down. You enter the wave. You're confident, you're strong, you have you know, as much oxygen as you, you need to survive. You, you fall, you get the violent pounding, you've been violated, you feel like your arm's ripped off, you get a stinger, and your arm's just stinging, or your back. Or The main place you get the stingers is in the arms, and it feels like they're broken, but it's just a stinger from the hit. And then um, if you can... Get yourself into a ball, and you can kind of pull your legs in without using too much energy is preferred. And, but then you relax, and you calm down. And once the violence is over, then you just got to go with it. 
because you're not going to come up until the hard, the aerated water passes, no matter how much flotation you have on, until that aerated water goes by and you're now in hard water, you will not come up. And so once the aerated water goes by and then you're down 10, 50, 60, whatever, however deep it takes you, if you're down deep, a lot of times your ears get it's like the craziest pressure and there's no time to equalize normally when you're down super deep you're in the aerated water so there's not as much pressure but once that aerated water is gone then the pressure comes in and then you kind of swim up nice and calm you have you've already you've already, you have your flotation on you may have already pulled if you pulled you're in the aerated water you're coming up pretty fast and you kind of just torpedo up with a couple of strokes and you got to get up right before that next wave comes to get you. A lot of times you're just getting your lips out and then one more rolls over you. And then and normally when you're in the white water, it's not as violent. It's the initial pounding of the, the lip and where the wave is a compression chamber that it's super violent. Sometimes even the white water is violent. Uh, usually it just rolls over you and rocks you and takes you and then slowly but surely spits you out the back where you get in the hard water and you come up again and you get your lips out again and hopefully another one's not rolling over you but sometimes you can get uh, two or three without barely getting a breath and then you come up and you get a little more get a couple breaths before the next one so I mean I've had like 20 waves before I uh, get to the shore or get rescued at least 20. You've had to be rescued 20 times. No, no, your... I've been rescued probably 1,000 times, thousands of times. I've had about 20 wave hold downs, like continuous consecutive waves in a row, one wave, then come up from one air, well, another wave, couple of breaths, another wave, couple of breaths, another wave, couple of breaths, another wave, another wave, no, no, and, and then you're starting to bounce off the rocks, and then they come and rescue you. Or Nazare, they either have rescued you or you're, you're crawling up the sand on your own. So when you get pounded, the main thing is to relax and enjoy it. Uh, the underwater riders can be more fun than the actual rides on the surfboard. They're, they're, you have zero control. You have, you're at the mercy of the ocean. It takes you as long as it wants or spins you out whenever it wants. It'll rip you apart or let you go nice and gentle you have to just enjoy it it is a choice you can choose to enjoy it i think that's very interesting i think if i was 60 feet underwater with i don't know thousands of pounds of water on top of me and i couldn't come up from here and i think i'm going to die i'm not sure i would enjoy that very much but let me ask you this how many times well if you if you if you prepared properly and you have a good team you would know you're not going to die so, so you can enjoy it. So you can enjoy it. <laughs> how many times have you almost died big wave surfing? Zero. Zero. So when I saw you in the hospital after a terrible injury and you had months of recuperation, it didn't look like you may not walk again, you're not going to call that you almost died? You're just going to call that a serious injury? Uh, the one with my, my foot? Like yeah. the concussion? Yeah, yeah, and you know, you're laid up in the hospital. Uh, I mean if I hit that if I hit the reef harder, I could have totally died. Yeah. But but it's like saying you almost got somebody pregnant. You did or you didn't. 
<laughs> do you ever have fear going out surfing? Uh, fear going out, not too often. I used to have it until about 2007, until that glacier experience, and then I didn't have it forever. And now I'm letting it come back, choosing entering my mind. But I just surfed Cortez. I wasn't afraid. I just surfed uh, the Eddie's Fall here. It's like 60 feet plus. wasn't afraid. But I was definitely more patient and definitely not as hungry. More patient, more calculated, more focus on making sure that I'm going to make my wave if I'm going to choose to ride it, getting in the spot to make the wave if I'm going to actually attempt to ride something, not just going, whatever, put me on the wave deep, I want to try and get barreled. No, it put me on the wave in the perfect spot or on the shoulder. <laughs> now, the shoulder isn't a very desired place to be because it's, it's very unfulfilling, first and foremost, but it's where it's more choppy and bumpy. So you want to be in the perfect spot. You want to be in the apex right on the line, on the perfect line. You don't, if you want to get the barrel, you want to be behind the line, deep. And that's where I used to always want to be. Now I just want to be on the line, on the perfect line. I want to either catch it in the perfect spot with my own two arms or have the driver put me in the perfect spot, entering perfectly at mid-face, not at the top of the wave, not at the bottom of the wave, not at the shoulder, not in deep, mid-face. You got a jet ski. You can drive good. You put me in the middle of the wave, right at the beginning of the wave. So what's your advice to people on how to conquer their fear? Face them. You got to face them to conquer them. But uh, not everybody wants to face their fears and not everybody wants to conquer their fears. And people get comfortable. Most of us in this world get comfortable where we are and we just want to stay where we're comfortable. And that's respectable. I mean, it's, it really holds a lot of us back from achieving our goals and dreams. And we just live this simple life and do these simple things and, and, uh, but never really live our purpose or what we love and we, we end up just, I mean, for lack, kind of like, I don't want to say slaves, but we end up just working for the weekend and working for the man. And it's a very weird world we have right now. Very interesting. I, I like the word, the world is so interesting and there's so many interesting people and there's, so many interesting jobs and it's crazy where it's going and where we are right now it's it's un, it's unimaginable but everything that we see on the tv or on the movies now somehow it's coming to light total recall is here now i never thought there would ever be a total recall here it's it's here we're we're living total recall right now um it's just the beginning. It's crazy. Where's it going to go? I don't know. It's so, so interesting. We want it to go in a good way. The, the, I do have hope that the technology can help us do the right things because we know what the right things are. We know how to do it, but it's the, it's us, the consumers, and um, the capitalists who want to make money on us that want to do things just to make money. So it's, it's a crazy world we're in. 
Going back to the fear question, you said in the past that the way to conquer your fears is to just keep doing scarier and scary things that they see until you go where you're comfortable or uncomfortable. How scary should we go to conquer our fear to the point where we're risking injury or death? To conquer your fears, make a plan to face them and make a very realistic plan on how to go about it, how to prepare first and foremost, and then uh, surround yourself with the right people, ask the right questions, then you make your plan, you make your goal, and then you make your plan, make sure it's all realistic. If you really want to succeed, actually, if you put a lot of time into it and you really focus on it, it'll be very fulfilling. It'll be short-lived. If you have a selfless component to that whole experience, it'll be very long-lived. It'll keep going. One of my favorite topics and something that I'm known for in my world and the mentoring I do and the coaching that I do is something I call extreme preparation, which is a completely different kind of preparation than most people know about or think about. I have a book coming out called Extreme Preparation next year, and I'm excited for people to learn some of the techniques. In big way surfing, most people don't understand the amount of preparation that goes in there. So maybe you can tell us what extreme preparation means in the world of big wave surfing. We can start about mapping out waves months in advance and planning trips and wind speeds and teams and all kinds of things. So can you tell us what extreme preparation means in the world of big wave surfing and how it's led to your success? Well, extreme preparation first is the safety plans and figuring out all the challenges that you may have once you're in the water, wherever location. All the locations have different challenges. So you've got to figure out, the ch- figure out the locations you want to surf, figure out the challenges you might face, and figure out solutions for all those challenges. That's extreme preparation. And you have to ve- be able to face the unknown challenges with a very calm and focused approach and stay calm um then you got to set up your locations uh and there's a very important aspect of who you're going to surround yourself with who's 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 going to have the skis who are you going to actually partner with when you show up are you going to bring all your own equipment are you going to set everything up there so you either set everything up at the location and have your own your team that you like working with that's that's ideal then you got the spots where you're going to show up and they have everything and you're going to work with some other crew. And that's when you got to be more of a, um, you have to be very, very direct, but also be uh, more, uh, not so rigidly attached to how you do things, but do your best to work with them. You know, and make sure the most important things are addressed and implemented and everything else you kind of work with the way they like to do it. There are certain things that you just can't bend and other things you can. You can. Uh, so that's preparation, the people, the spot. Then there's the training. And the training, I think, is most important physically, because if you're physically, if you feel you physically put the right time in and took the right approach to your training and your eating, 
then you're mentally there. You're you're mentally focused. You feel mentally strong and ready because you're physically ready. Uh, and then you know if you're just going to go there just for fun, then you don't have to consider bringing a camera crew or or documenting it. And that's beautiful. That that's what the way you should be going there, not to document it. Now, if the cameras come along, then you got to make sure they're part. They're they know the protocols. They know the the safety plans and yeah it's really about planning ahead planning for the worst having a solution for worst case scenario but expect the best and only visualize and see the best happening see the outcome see the result you want plan for the best but see the re once you start seeing the bad the negative that's when it goes bad so but you got to plan for the worst and, and see the best. How important is visualizing our outcomes in terms of accomplishing our dreams? I, I like to call it manifesting, and it's one of the most important things in life. Um, our minds are so powerful, and we can do anything we want. Every single person in the world can actually be, do, or become anything they want with the right plan. But it has to be real. If you're starting out as a child, you can pretty much be anything, no matter where you're starting. But if you're starting out as an adult, you might want to have a more realistic plan of what you really want to do. And the main thing is figuring out what you love, what you're passionate about. You might have to go back to when you were three and remember what you were passionate about because we're so conditioned now. We don't even know what we love. We just love what, whatever we're conditioned to love. So, um, yeah. Every, everything's possible. Let's talk about philanthropy for two minutes. Tell us about the McNamara Foundation, how people can get involved, and what your goals there are. Our, our goals are to share a meaningful nature experiences with, first and foremost, underprivileged youth. Um, they're the future. They are... They need it more than anybody, and they're the people who are going to be the future of the world. So if we can get them to fall in love with nature through surfing or through hiking or through whatever activity the day allows that we take them out. We take them out once a week. Uh, it's, it's mainly surf therapy, and then we give them coping skills, and then we get goal setting, and we sh share uh, with the, me, them where I started, eating out of trash cans, and where I got with goal setting. And so they, and, and I take them surfing and we empower them through surfing. They they surf, then they hear the story and then they like, wow, oh, if he started there, I can do it. So then they, they're really empowered. And the goal is just to let them know that everything's possible, but also empower stewards of the earth at the same time so we can have this earth to live on. So otherwise, future not looking so good. Um, and okay. then we have a chap that's in Nazareth. We have we work with the orphans of Nazareth and a bunch of refugees from all over, all over. Uh, they all live in Nazareth now. Um, and then um, here in Hawaii, there is a sex trafficking rehabilitation center called Pearl Haven. And we do the surf therapy program for them. There is 600. There's. 100,000 sex traffic teens in the United States that we know about. There are probably more, but there's only 600 beds in 
the rehab facilities nationwide. 30 of the beds are in Hawaii, right at the beach where I learned how to surf. So we that now that's what they look forward to every weekend is the surf therapy program and they are coming out of their shell they're they're uh yeah there's these it's crazy these girls never trusted a man in their life the only thing they think of a man is somebody who's gonna come have sex with them and do whatever they want with them so there was this uh graduation going down and and uh the camp director was a man, which is kind of a touchy, kind of weird, and and it's hard. I'm like, I can't really go there. They don't want, and they're not. If it's the right kind of person, yes, you can. So the 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 guy who was running the program was there doing the graduation with the girls, and uh, the girl looks up to him and said, "Just you're you're the first man that I could ever feel safe around. Thank you so much." Crazy. So it's the McNamara Foundation, and we have two chapters. We we're hoping to do things worldwide. Right now, we're we are kind of worldwide: Nazareth and Hawaii, um, and yeah, McNamara Foundation, Waves of Life. You're doing great things. Let's end this with one question: What's the one thing you wish you had told your 21 year old self, or would tell your 21 year old self if you could go back in time? Study harder in school. Read more books. What's the one question you wish I'd asked you but didn't ask you? Oh, no. I, you stumped me. <laughs> oh, um, how did you stay in the game for so long? And how do you still have a career in surfing at 55? Pretend like I asked you that question. We got to do a little bit of it because I, I did want people to know you're 55 years old. I did want to talk about the training and, and the diet. But what is the secret to staying in the it's game It's all so about figuring out what your niche is in whatever you do because everybody can do some something better than everybody else because we all do it in our own special way. You might not think you're as good as that guitar player who is the best in the world, but you're, you do your little special thing with the guitar that he can't, and you do it better. Um, that's just like a little... So, yeah, we all have a unique gift, and just figure out what your niche is and hone in on it, and now you can actually market it on Instagram, which is weird, but it's true. You can be whoever you want. Garrett, I'm really grateful for you being here today. I'm a huge fan, as I said. I love the series. I knew nothing about big wave surfing before that. I encourage everyone to watch season one. I think you're in the middle of season two right now. So thanks for being on my show. I'm really grateful for you being here. Thank you. You know, um, Bob Hurley, uh, he's the owner of Hurley. Yep. I asked him for advice. He's a very good friend, and I go to him once, or, once a year, once every other year to get advice. And he said, number one thing, Garrett, Whatever you gonna, whatever you're gonna do, make sure you're reaching full potential, or don't do it. That's the goal of In Search of Excellence: to inspire and motivate people to be the best they can be. One percent better every day. One percent better every day. I appreciate you, and I look forward to staying in touch with you. Thanks very much. All right, thank you. <laughs> 